0: NPR.org, March 31st, 2020, heard on Fresh Air. This is by Terry Gross, the religion section, WAMU 88.5, American University Radio. 1.25 p.m. East Coast time of that day. Heaven and hell are not what Jesus preach, religion scholar says. Bart Erman says the ideas of eternal rewards and punishments aren't found in the Old Testament or in the teachings of Jesus. His new book is Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. Terry Gross hosts. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. When we originally scheduled an interview we're about to hear, we didn't realize how weirdly timely it would be. Let's face it, the pandemic has made death a presence on a scale most of us aren't used to. Your beliefs about what happens after death or if anything happens might shape how you're dealing with your fears and anxieties. In a new book, Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife, my guest Bart Ehrman writes about where the ideas of heaven and hell came from. He examines the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, as well as writings from the Greek and Roman era. Ehrman is a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. As one of America's most widely read scholars of early Christianity in the New Testament. His books, such as Misquoting Jesus and How Jesus Became God, challenge a lot of beliefs and common wisdom. As for Ehrman's beliefs as a child, he was an altar boy in the Episcopalian Church. At age 15, he became a born-again fundamentalist evangelical Christian. After attending the Moody Bible Institute, he studied at Princeton Theological Seminary, which introduced him to texts and interpretations led him to a more liberal form of Christianity. Eventually, he left the faith altogether. Bart Erman, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you back. How are you and your family? Bart Erman? we're all well, and thanks for having me back. Gross. So is the pandemic making you think differently about your book? Are you seeing your book in a way that you didn't quite when you were actually writing it? Urban. I would say not so much. I mean, my view is that, you know, people have always been concerned about death, including me, about what happens to them when they die. I think that. And so that's why I took on this book in the first place. But the pandemic for me is simply making it crystal clear why these are issues for so many people, I agree. Most people, of course, are more concerned about the process of dying right now or getting sick or the economics of that. I'm included in that, by the way. But there's still the issue of death, so it should simply become more pronounced. That is true. Gross, is it fair to say you're an atheist now? Ermin, that is fair to say. And he laughed. I actually consider myself both an atheist and agnostic. Because I, you know, I don't really know if there's a superior being in the universe, but I don't believe there is. And so in terms of what I know, I'm an agnostic, but in terms of what I believe, I'm an atheist. Okay. Here's where I butt in lovingly, and this is what I say about myself. I have said many times that in terms of what I know, I'm an agnostic. But in terms of what I believe, I'm a theist. Here's what that means. I've always sensed myself to be naturally drawn to supernaturalism, the miraculous, and the otherworldly. And my natural... Inclinations to those concepts have been the biggest sustenance of my full livelihood. Ever since I was five years old, at a time where I had no choice but to be a mature Christian, because of the religious persecution I was experiencing from the rapists and adult female bodies, I've always sensed myself to also be a person who values the impossible, the unfathomable, the unthinkable, the unforeseeable, the unknown may be known to us when we use our inner sight over our outer sight so I still have those natural inclinations I think they're permanent um, because I'm still intoxicated by the concept of a loving God I've been intoxicated by it since I was about five years old and some people go all oh, the suffering you went through why? and I said I've always been attracted to the idea of somebody answering my questions when I die. Like, that, that possibility has always given me hope. Like, you mean to tell me after I die, it's possible that potentially there could be a creator or one of the Christian universe that could actually break it down to me on why all the good, why all the bad, and why all the in between of my life? I've always imagined myself interviewing God, and God interviewing me. And I would say to that God, "I naturally like you. I naturally love you. I naturally, and res- I, I naturally respect you. However." There are times where it felt impossible for me not to be upset with you because of this unexplainable human agony that I endured forcibly on this earth in my youth. All these. Out of this world completely. Complexities and all of these out of this world unfilled blanks and out of this and all these out of this world unanswered questions I'm like God break it down to me now that I'm in my afterlife form I can now understand what you're about to say to me break it down to me right now please and thank you that's how I've always imagined meeting God everlasting. But let me keep going. Gross. In a time like this, do you wish you could still believe in a heaven that offers eternal life in a place where you would be united with loved ones? Ermen Yeah, that would absolutely be good. I agree. It's not that I wish I believed, I wish that it were true. Pause. I would say that I hope it's true. And I still believe in my soul. I don't know if heaven is described in the Bible the way it is, but I've always believed that there is a paradise where all the good people go Christian and non-Christian. I've always felt that God doesn't have a problem with decent people God has a problem with pure evil, with diabolical intentionality. Now it now, because of what's allowed in the world, I can understand why people would feel differently, and I understand, and I'm like, I'm suffering with you, so I I know your pain. And I feel you. I'm with you. I understand the way he thinks. A lot of times I feel that way too. And a lot of other times I, I, I try to tell myself different because the concept of having, is one of the reasons why I can live another day and every day with peace in my heart so I don't judge people harshly say how can heaven be real when I'm experiencing all this earthly hell I'm like a lot of times I think that way too a lot of times I feel like how can heaven be real when all the you know all these traumas I face and I'm like I'm with you don't ever feel like I'm not with you because I'm always with you I understand um, I, these are just concepts that help me keep going and whatever concepts help you to stay hopeful and filled with self belief despite all of our self knowledge despite all of what happened. Use what works for you, you know? That's how I feel. Um, Some people doubt the afterlife and existence of it. I do too, despite my belief. Um, So I understand to keep going. And as I say in my book, as I'll probably get to, it may be true that we will live after we die. I I love that statement he just made because that's my mentality. But if we do be something pleasant like that, strongly agreed. It's not gonna be something awful, strongly agreed. So I, you know, it's not that I wish I believed it so much as I wish that it were true. Um I'm into knowledge over belief. That's one of the reasons why I practice no religion. So you could put me in the religiously unaffiliated box. You could put me in the none box when it comes to which religion to practice. And at the same time, there, I do have faith to some extent because there's some things I don't know, but I can only hope. Like, for example, do I know that I wake up I wake up to my grandma. Once I close my eyes on the side of life, I don't have the brain capacity for it. But my soul says that's exactly what will happen. And despite all the trauma of my life, my soul never budge[s] nor wavers from that conviction. That's how I'm wired. Um. Knowledge to me means, regardless of what I feel, it's always real. While I do have, while well, with belief, belief is more of it should be a hypothesis, an educated guess. So there are times where I do take educated guess on God. Um, I hope that. Okay, I got the earphones. I'm not going to move around so much because I don't want you to be distracted. Here we go. Um, I do hope in belief to some extent, meaning I believe that paradise means all the good people that have lived I get to meet them. Do I have knowledge of it? No. But in a sense, it's like I do because my soul says yes. Uh, Gross. Okay, let me move my earphone one more time and I won't ever move it again. Here we go. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. So, again, won't be distracted. That's what we're done with. Gross. So, what do you believe about death now? About what happens after you die? Ermin. Well, I, you know, I've read about death, I thought about death and the afterlife for many, many years now. Me too. And what you know, what philosophers say, theologians say, biblical scholars say, and you know what people generally say. Me too. And I still think that Socrates is the one who probably put it best. When he was on trial on capital charges, so it was a death sentence waiting him. He was talking with his companions about what death would be in his view is that it's one of two things. Um, either we live on and we see. Those we knew before, those we didn't know before. We spent all of our time being with them. I I am so hopeful that's true. Which for him was absolute paradise because Socrates liked nothing better than conversing with people. Me too. Me and Socrates have, Socrates have something in common. We have something in common. And so now he could converse with Homer with all the great, greats of the Greek past. I hope I can converse with all of my ancestors and all of the unsung heroes, including the sang heroes too. Ah, oh, I look forward to that day. So that would be great. Agree. And if it and if it's not that, he said it would be like a deep sleep. I'm open to that. Everybody loves a deep dreamless sleep. I do. I love deep dreamful sleeps too. Actually, those are my favorite. Uh, nobody frets about it, gets upset by having it. That's true. That's true. True for me too. So that's the alternative. And so it's either deep sleep or it's a good outcome. Either way, it's going to be fine. That's exactly what I think. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I prefer the good outcome, but I'm open to the deep sleep. And either way, it's going to be fun. What I think I, mean, I agree with Bart on those, on those couple of things. Gross. One of the pieces of your book about the history of heaven, how is that views of heaven and hell don't go back to the early stages of Christianity and they're not in the Old Testament Jesus' teachings. They're not? Those are the questions that I'm asking because... A lot of times I do articles, I don't completely read everything. I read enough to go, okay, this is gonna be a stellar article. Ehrman, he laughed. I know exactly, this is the big surprise of the book and it's the one thing people probably won't expect because you know, when I was growing up, I just assumed, I did too. This is the view of Christianity, I saw it that way too. So this must be what Jesus taught. That's how I felt back then. This is what the Old Testament taught. I felt that way too and in fact, it's not right. I'm shocked right now. Our view that you die and your soul goes to heaven or hell is not found anywhere in the Old Testament, and it's not what Jesus preached. I have to show you that in my book, and I lay it out and explain why it's absolutely not the case that Jesus believed you died and your soul went to heaven or hell. I'm shocked right now. Jesus had a completely different understanding that people today don't have. Gross, are there things in the Hebrew Bible that still support the idea of heaven and hell as people can to understand it? Things that you can extract from the Old Testament that might not literally mention heaven and hell, but still support the vision and immersion of it? Herman, I think one of the hardest things for people to get their minds around is that ancient Israelites and then Jews and then Jesus himself and his followers have a very different understanding of what the relationship between what we call body and soul. Our view is that we, you've got two things going on in the human part. So you have your body, your physical being, you have your soul. This invisible part of you that lives on after death that you can separate the two and they can exist, the soul can exist outside of the body. That is not a view that was held by ancient Israelites and Jews and it's not even taught in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what we would call the soul. It's really more like what we would call the breath. When God creates Adam, he creates him out of earth, and then he breathes life into him. You know, dust was a big part of that, actually. That's my add-on to it. The life is in the breath. When the breath leaves the body, the body no longer lives, but the breath doesn't exist. We agree with this. I mean, when you die, you stop breathing. The breath doesn't go anywhere. And that was the ancient understanding, the ancient Hebrew understanding of the soul, is that it didn't go anywhere because it was simply the thing that made the body alive. And so, in the Old Testament, there's no idea that your soul goes one place or another because the soul doesn't exist apart from the body. From the body, existence is entirely bodily, and that was the view that Jesus then picked up. Across, are there specific passages in the Hebrew Bible that support the notion of an afterlife? Herman. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And people generally point to these passages in the book of Psalms that talk about Sheol or Sheol. It's a word that gets mistranslated into English. Sometimes Sheol is translated by the word hell, and it's ap- and, it, and it absolutely is not what people think of as hell. Sometimes Sheol is talked about by, by people today as a place that's kind of like the Greek Hades, a place where everybody goes after they die and they aren't, really physical beings down there, they're just kind of like souls and they exist forever there and there's nothing to do and they do, they're all the same. And so Sheol is sometimes portrayed like that. The Bible does talk about this place, Sheol, especially in poetry, especially in Psalms. And it's probably not a place that people go to per se. And if you actually look at what the Psalms say about Sheol, they always equate it to the grave or to the pit. And so it appears that the ancient Israelites simply thought that when you died, your body got buried someplace. It got put in a grave or it got put in a pit, and that's what they called Sheol. It's the place that your remains are, but it's not a place where you continue to exist afterwards. Just about the only place in the Hebrew Bible where you get an instance of somebody who has died, who seems still to be alive afterwards, is in this very strange and interesting passage in the book of 1 Samuel where the king Saul is desperate for some advice from somebody who knows and so he calls. He has a necromancer, a woman, this woman of, of Endor, who calls up his former advisor Samuel from the grave and she holds a kind of seance. And Samuel comes up and is really upset that she's called him up from the grave and he gets upset with Saul for doing this. And he predicts that Saul is going to die the next day in battle, which he does. And so people often point to that as an instance that's, well, so people are alive after they're dead. Again, and so people often point to that as an instance that's, well, so people are alive after they're dead. And right, it kind of seems like that when you read it, when you just kind of simply read it. But if you actually read it carefully, it doesn't say that. What it says is that Samuel came up, but it doesn't say where he was. And it doesn't say if he was living at the time. It looks like what? before he was raised up. Looks like he was simply dead and was brought back to life temporarily and he didn't appreciate that. Bart laughed. And so he was upset. cross. Why don't we take a short break here and then we'll talk about the history of ideas of heaven and hell. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bart Ehrman. He's the author of the new book, Heaven and Hell, a history of the afterlife. We'll be right back in this fresh air. Soundbite of Stefano Bellani's e Kundra, Gross. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Bart Ehrman, author of the new book, Heaven, Hell, and History of Babylon. He's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So you write that starting in the 6th century, Hebrew prophets begin to proclaim, you know, that the nation had been destroyed and would be restored back to life by God. It would be the resurrection of the nation. But then toward the end of the Hebrew Bible era, some Jewish thinkers came to believe that the future resurrection... Would apply not just to the nation but to individuals. So how does that shift? S H I F T happen, Urban. Right. So this is a really important shift. S I S H I F T for understanding both the history of later Judaism and the history of later Christianity and historical Jesus. About 200 before Jesus was born, there was a shift in thinking in ancient Israel that became. It became a form of ideology, a kind of religious thought that scholars today call apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic, apocalypticism. That has to do with the apocalypse, the revelation of God. These people began to think that the reason they're suffering the world is not what the prophets had said—that it because people sin and God is punishing them. It's because there are forces of evil in the world that are aligned against God and His people who are creating suffering. I say. So get these demonic forces in the world that are creating misery for everyone but they these apocalyptic thinkers came to think that god was soon going to destroy these forces of evil and get rid of them altogether, and the world would again return to to an, a utopia it would be like paradise it would be like the garden of eden once more the people thought that maintaining this garden of eden would come not only to people who happened to be alive when it arrived it was going to come to everybody. People had been on the side of God throughout history would be personally raised from the dead and individually be brought into this new era, this new kingdom that God would rule here on earth. Ross, So this is all dependent on like the Messiah coming on the end of days, which some Jewish prophets predicted would be soon. When Jesus was alive, he thought the end of days would be soon and of course it kept not happening. Ermin, yeah, gross. And you say that for the ancient Jews, the fact that the Messiah didn't come, that was a turning point in the beliefs about what happens after death, too? There started to be a belief that reward and punishment would be right after death, as opposed to after the Messiah comes? Ermine, yeah. That became a view somewhat in Judaism. It became a very pronounced view in Christianity. That after Jesus, Jesus himself held to the ap- apocalyptic view. That I laid out. He taught. His main teaching is that the kingdom of God is coming. People today when they read the phrase kingdom of God. They think he's talking about heaven. The place that your soul goes to when you die. But Jesus isn't talking about heaven. Because he doesn't believe he's a Jew. He doesn't believe in the separation of soul and body. He doesn't think the soul is going to live on in heaven. He thinks that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. God will destroy the forces of evil. He will raise the dead and those who have been on god's side especially those who follow jesus teachings will enter the new kingdom here on earth they'll be physical they'll be in bodies and they will live here on earth and this is where the paradise will be and so jesus taught that the kingdom of god this new physical place was coming soon and those who did not get into the kingdom were going to be annihilated what ends up happening is that over time that this expectation of the kingdom was coming soon began to be questioned because it was supposed to come soon, and it did come soon, and it's still not coming. And when is it going to come? And people start thinking, well, you know, sure i are going to get rewarded, you know, not in some kingdom that's going to come in a few thousand years, but I'm going to get rewarded by God right away. So they ended up shifting the thinking away from the idea that there would be a kingdom here on Earth that was soon to come to thinking that the kingdom, in fact, is up with God above in heaven. So they started thinking that it comes at death, and people started assuming then that in fact your soul will live on. It's not an accident that that came to Christianity after the majority of people coming into the Christian church were raised in Greek circles rather than in Jewish circles because in Jewish circles, there is no separation of the soul and the body. The soul didn't exist separately, but in Greek circles, going way back to Plato and before him, there was that was absolutely the belief. The soul was immortal and it would live forever in Greek thinking. And so these people convert to Christianity were principally Greek thinkers, they thought there was a soul that lived forever. They developed the idea then that the soul lived forever with God when it's rewarded. Gross. So you were saying there really isn't an explicit description of heaven and hell in the Hebrew Bible or even the New Testament. But that Paul is important in understanding the history of heaven and hell. Tell us about what Paul wrote, Erman. Paul is very important for understanding the history of heaven and hell. As he's important for understanding most things about early Christian thinking. Paul was not a father of Jesus during his lifetime, during Jesus' lifetime. He wasn't one of the disciples. He converted several years after Jesus' death. He, Paul, was Jewish. He was raised Jewish. He wasn't raised in Israel. He's from outside of Israel. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. But he was also like Jesus an apocalypticist, who thought that at the end of the age, there would be a resurrection of the dead. When he became convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead, he thought that the resurrection had started. So he talked about living in the last days because he assumed that everybody else now is going to be raised to follow suit. So Paul thought he would be alive when the end came. For Paul, Jesus is going to come back from heaven and bring in God's kingdom here on earth, and people would be raised from the dead for a glorious eternity. Paul in his earliest letters affirms that view of the imminent resurrection. It's going to come very soon, and he fully expected to be alive when it happened. But then time dragged on and a couple of decades passed and it didn't arrive, and Paul started realizing that in fact he might die before it happened. And so in some of his later letters, he ponders the possibility of death and he wonders, well, what happens to me then if I'm brought to the presence of Christ at the resurrection? And you know, there's a gap between the time I die and what happens to me during that gap? Again, if I'm brought to the presence of Christ at the resurrection, You know, there's a gap between the the time I die and what happens to me during that gap? And he started thinking that surely he's going to be in Christ's presence during that time. So it came up with the idea that he would have a temporary residence up with Christ in God's realm in heaven until then end came. So this is what the later Paul has to say. This is the beginning of the Christian idea of heaven and hell, that you can exist even though your physical remains are dead. You can exist in the presence of God in heaven once paul started saying that his fathers really latched onto it because most of paul's converts were from greek circles they were gentiles they weren't jews and they had been raised with the idea that your soul lives on after death and now they had a christian model to put it on they could say that yes your soul lives on so when you die your soul will go up to heaven and your soul will go up to god with heaven and as time went on that became the emphasis rather than the idea of the resurrection with the dead cross How does hell come into it? Well, so since these people believe that the soul is immortal, that you could kill the body, but you can't kill the soul, they thought, well, okay, so our soul will go to heaven to be with God. But then they realized, well, what about the people who are not on the side of God? Well, if we're being rewarded, they're going to be punished, and that's how you start getting the development of the idea of hell, that it's a place where souls go to be punished in as the opposite of the people go to heaven to be rewarded. And in thinking this, as it turns out, the Christians aren't simply picking up on views that have been around among the Greeks since way back in the time of Plato. Plato also has ideas about souls living on either to be rewarded or punished forever. And Christians now, who are mainly coming from Greek context, latched onto that idea with a Christian way of putting it, gross. We have to take a short break here, so let's do that, then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bart Ehrman, who is the author of the new book, Heaven hell, and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. He, he's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. We'll be right back and talk more about the history of Heaven and Hell. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. soundbite of Matt Illerie looms over under other. Gross, this is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with Bart Ehrman, author of the new book, Heaven and Hell, history of the afterlife he's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the university of north carolina chapel hill is one of america's most widely read scholars of early christianity in the new testament His other books under include misquoting jesus and how jesus became god you have also studied the gnostic gospels which were the recently discovered gospels that never became part of the canon and these are more mystical texts. and these are more mystical texts and the most famous of the gnostic gospels is thomas what was his vision of what happens after death? Herman, the various groups of Christians that people sometimes label Gnostic would cover a wide range of views. There are lots of different religions that people have called Gnostic. But one thing that most of them have in common is the idea that the body is not what matters. The body is not your friend and God does not create the body. The body is a cosmic disaster. I... I I see it differently from the Gnostics. The body is my friend, my body is divine, and my body is extraordinarily mesmerizing. And then Erman continues, That's why we experience so much pain and suffering because we live in these material shells. I have a healthy relationship with my body and other people's bodies, by the way. Uh, and in most Gnostic religions, Bart Ehrman says, the idea is to get out of this shell, to escape this shell. So they have very much different so they have very much a differentiation between soul and body. It comes Gnosticism in some ways comes out of Greek thinking. So for them, there's no resurrection of the dead. Um, I don't want to escape my body, I want to be whole in my body, get out of the shell. I don't want to get out of my body, I want to be in my body with self-respect. Nazis disagree with the Jewish idea that at the end of the time, God will raise the dead physically. For Gnostics, the idea of being raised in your body is repulsive. You mean I get to live in this thing forever? No, real life is in the soul, so they de- denied the idea of the resurrection of the body. And what is interesting is Gnostics then claim that Jesus also denied it. So when you read the Gnostic Gospels, you find Jesus denouncing the idea that there's a resurrection of the body, that life will de- be lived internally in the body, strictly a matter of the soul. Hey, I'm always open... To miracles being true. Virgin birth, feeding thousands of folks, resurrection of the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine. I'm up with all these miracles and all the other miracles I didn't mention there in the Bible to be true. Okay. And the other interesting thing is that what the Gnostics did by reading their ideas into Jesus is also what the orthodox christians did by putting words in jesus's lips that support the ideas of heaven and hell so in our various gospels you have jesus saying all sorts of things that are contradictory because different people are putting their own ideas onto his lips. gross so your new book is about the history of heaven and hell your forthcoming book that you're working on now is going to be called expecting armageddon so how does the book of revelation contribute to the vision of hell Ermine? Well, yeah, you know, a lot of people read Revelation as indicating that people who are opposed to God, sinners will be cast to the lake of fire forever. They'll be, yeah, they'll be floating in fire for eternity. And they get that from several passages in the book of Revelation. I deal with this in my book where I try to show that, in fact, the book of Revelation does not describe the eternal torment for sinners in the lake of fire. That There are several beings that go into the lake of fire, but they're not human beings. They're the Antichrist the beasts, and the devil, and their supernatural forces that are tormented forever. The people in the book of Revelation, human beings who aren't on the side of God, are actually destroyed. They are wiped out. This is the view that is fairly consistent throughout the New Testament, starting with Jesus. Jesus believed that people would be destroyed when at the end of time they will be annihilated. So their punishment is they would not get the kingdom of God. That also is the view of Paul, that people would be destroyed if when Jesus returns. It's not that they're going to live on forever, and this is the view of Revelation. People do not live forever. they aren't brought into the new Jerusalem, the city of God that descends from heaven, they will be destroyed. Gross. So a lot of the imagery of hell comes from the book of Revelation. It's a very explicit kind of gruesome book. And I wonder if you thought about why it's so graphic, Erman. Yeah, I've thought a lot about it. As you said, it's gonna be what my next book is on. It's about how people have misinterpreted Revelation's prediction of about what's gonna happen in our future. And the graphic imagery in the book has really contributed to all these interpretations of Revelation. But earlier I was saying that Jesus was an apocalypticist who thought the world was going to come to an end, that God was going to destroy the forces of evil to bring in a good kingdom. That is precisely what the author of the book of Revelation thinks that, and the book is a description of how it's going to happen. The book is all about the terrible destruction that's going to take place on earth when God destroys everything as opposed to him in quotations before bringing in a good kingdom so all the imagery of death and destruction and disease and the war in the book of Revelation is used to show what terrible measures god has to take in order to destroy the forces of evil that are completely have completely infiltrated our human world before he brings in a new world this though is not a book about that describes what's going to happen to individuals when they die and go to heaven or hell it's a description of the final judgment of god that somehow is going to be coming to earth cross You talk about how belief in the end times led in a circuitous way to belief in heaven and hell. I've heard a lot of joking lately about how it's the end times. You know, California was on fire. We have climate change, extreme weather and earthquakes and volcanoes. And people are afraid that the planet itself is dying. We have, you know, plastics in the ocean, ice caps that are melting. And now we have the pandemic. I'm wondering if you're hearing that kind of thing, too. Ermin, yes, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, a lot of people aren't joking, they take it very seriously. And it's, I want to say a couple of things about that. First, is uh, it's first is every generation from the time of Jesus till to today has had Christians who assisted that the prophecies were coming true in their own day. There have always been people who actually picked the time that's going to happen. There are two things that you can say about every one of these people over history who's picked it, who's picked the time. One is they base their predictions on the book of Revelation. And secondly, every one of them has been incontrovertibly wrong, He laughed, So that should give one pause. The things that are happening now are absolutely dreadful, as of course they were 1916 to 1914 to 1918, as they have been at other times in history. The book that I'm writing, I'm now calling Expect and Armageddon, is all about that. It's about how people have misused the book of Revelation to talk about how. The end is coming. How it always seems like it's going to be coming in our own time. Everybody thinks this is as bad as it could as it can be. You know, this time we may have it right. This kind of thinking that really came to promise at the end of the 19th and into the 20th century it hit big promise in 1945 when we actually had the means of destroying ourselves off the planet, which we still have by the way. People aren't talking about nuclear weapons anymore but they probably should be because that's another way this whole thing might end. But now the talk is more about climate change than it should be. We may do it to ourselves this time, but it won't be a prediction. A fulfillment of predictions of a prophecy. It'll be because of human stupidity and refusal to act in the face of crisis. Gross, let's take a break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is religion scholar Bart Ehrman, who is the author of the new book, heaven and hell A history of the afterlife we'll talk more after a break this is fresh air soundbite of julian Lage's supera gross this is fresh air let's get back to my interview with bart Ehrman, author of the new book heaven and hell A history of the afterlife he's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the university of north carolina chapel hill and the author of many books about early christianity so now we're faced with a pandemic You could i suppose use the word plague and the word you know plague is in the hebrew bible what were the explanations in the Hebrew Bible for plagues? Ermin, um, yeah, the Old Testament has a fairly uniform and rather stark explanation for why there are plagues or epidemics or pandemics. In virtually every case, we're told that it's because God is punishing people. People have gone against His will, and so He is, so He's bringing this disastrous epidemic upon them. You get that in the story of Moses in the Book of Exodus. You get it everywhere in the writings of the prophets and Amos and. Amos and Isaiah, etc. This was the old view that the reason God's people suffer is because they've done something wrong and He wants them to repent. Eventually, Jewish thinkers began to re- begin to reason that it didn't make much sense because there were times when they would be doing what God told them to do, or at least they'd be doing their level best to do what God told them to do and they'd still be suffering these plagues. And that's when we developed the idea that, in fact, it's the force of evil causing these disasters. These continue to be two of the common explanations today. There are people today who are saying that the reason of the pandemic is because, you know, one sin or another. It's because, if you know, those LGBTQI plus folks, you know, who are, allowing promise, who are allowing promiscuous activity. God is punishing us, or it's because of, you know, one social ill or another that God is punishing. And you have that group, and then you have groups who are saying that it's the devil doing it. That, in fact, is the course of evil. Satan is working his way, and that's because we're at the end of time, and he has to be released here at the end of time before God will intervene. You get both of these explanations. Most people probably don't subscribe to either one. Most people just say, well, look, you know, it's a pandemic. We better pay attention to our scientists, which which is obviously more socially satisfying answer to the question. Herman. Uh, Gross. When you were 15 and became a fundamentalist evangelical Christian, what would you have believed about the pandemic, I Ermine? Mean, that's a really good question. I probably would have subscribed. I would have subscribed to either the view that God was upset and we needed to repent so that he would relent, or that the devil, it was the devil doing it, needed to pray to God for mercy for him to intervene on our path. Cross, and compare that to now. I Ermine mean, well, I think those views, I mean, I respect believers. I do not try to convert anybody. I don't try to trash anybody's views. I try to respect everybody's views. Those are the same convictions I have, by the way. I think that sometimes those very highly religious views can be socially extremely dangerous because if you think of that the cause is supernatural and you don't have much motivation to find a natural solution. It is quite dangerous to refuse the findings of science because of your personal beliefs. We all just hope that it doesn't lead to even further disaster. Frost, I'm wondering since you've changed from being a fundamentalist when you were in your teens and early 20s and now being an agnostic atheist how have you dealt with the, death and the pending deaths and depending deaths of these of loved ones who do believe and who you know who are Christians or Christian believers and do believe in heaven and hell like I'm sure you don't want to talk to them like I'm sure you don't want to talk to them out of their beliefs but it's not what you believe Ermin, yeah Ross so how do you mediate between your beliefs and their beliefs and how you talk to them about what will happen? How you talk to yourself, Herman? Well, I talk with somebody, especially somebody who's close to me, who is a firm belief in heaven and hell. I have no reason to disabuse them of that, unless they're using that belief to, to hurt somebody or to advocate social policies that are harmful to people. Yeah, that is a very good question. My dear elderly mother is a very good Christian. She believes that she will die. And she will go to heaven. She will see her husband. So I would be crazy to say no, mom. And I saw it be crazy to say no, mom. Actually, yeah, you're not gonna see him. He, she He laughed. Of course, I'm not going to. I mean, there's no reason to shatter somebody's beliefs, especially if they simply are, especially if they simply are providing them with hope. I strongly agree with that. My view is that we all believe very strange things, and most of the time we don't realize how strange they are. There's truth to that. And so I don't it's not that I think I believe only rational things and everybody else is irrational. Yeah, I feel the same way too. I have a different set of beliefs, but my firm's belief is that wherever we believe it should not do harm in the world, it should do good in the world. I concur. And of course, belief in heaven and hell has done a lot of good. I concur. It's also done a lot of harm. I concur. That's terrified people. I concur. There are people who are terrified of God because they're afraid, they're literally afraid that they'll be tormented for trillions of years just as, as the beginning. I think that's a harmful belief. Hmm. I see why he feels that way. Because when is the punishment going to end? Is it really punishment if it's everlasting? Or is that just... Criminal mastermind. So I'm gonna keep going. I just had to take a pause because What he said is so powerful. There are people who are terrified of dying because they're afraid. They're literally afraid that they'll be tormented for trillions of years, just as the beginning. I think that's a harmful belief. I can relate to that. So I'll never try to talk somebody out of belief in heaven but I certainly will try to talk people out of belief in hell because simply wrong is harmful. Um, I, I, this is what I'll say. I agree with him when he says, he will never try to talk somebody out of belief in heaven. Um, I can relate to what he's saying about try, try to talk people out of belief in hell because simply wrong is harmful. However, I don't try to convince people of whether there's an afterlife or not I don't try to talk people out of heaven or hell or purgatory I just let it be do I think that hell has caused psychological damage to a lot of people based on my credible research yes at the same and has it been wrong or harmful to many people? Yes. Based on credible research, if you look at Christian history and, and how people are evangelized, those kind of things. Um, but do I ever try to talk people out of belief in hell? No. Do I try to talk people out of belief in purgatory? No. Do I try to talk people out of a belief in heaven? No. Um Hell could be real? I don't know. Heaven could be real? I don't know. Uh, purgatory could be real? I don't know. The only life I know for a certain one percent is this one. And I focus on the present moment of mindfulness. Um, this is also what I want to say. Um, for me... I was just taking a breather because I was thinking deeply about these topics. Sometimes I take a long pause because gathering my thoughts together because there's so many words and concepts that hit me all at once. So um, I'm back. So now I've got the words I let me speak. So for me, um, could there be a Satan? Possibly, but I don't know. Could there be demons, devils, angels, the angelic realm, demonic realm, archangels, archdemons, ghosts, uh, apparitions, just spirits in general, good good spirits, evil spirits, good good spirits, Um, the occult, They're all possible, but I don't know. That's my answer to all supernaturalism questions, miracles questions. I say it's possible. They're all possible, actually. But I do not know. I have no idea. So that's my response, because all I know is this life that I do. Uh, could demon possession or angel possession be real? Uh, It's possible, but I don't know because the only life, again, I know is this one. Um, The extraordinary claims of the Bible. Could they be real? Possibly, but I don't know. I don't know. Could there be a Christ figure? Possibly, but I don't know. Could there be a creator called God? Possibly, but I don't know. That's where my agnosticism comes from. I don't know. I'm into I'm into consistently updating and revising my beliefs, my stances, my opinions, my convictions, my viewpoints. My perspectives I find myself constantly growing and maturing daily so the way I looked at life right now is not the way I looked at it when it wasn't midnight east coast time you know but let me read you more of what he said it, he's talking about hell now it does psychological damage when people raise their children and stuff it gets scarred them for life so I think That hell is something we need to fight against. Heaven I'm all for. I'm all for heaven too. And I think hell is something we need to fight against. Like the earthly hells. Because if we teach people. To be positive. Persons for all the positive reasons. Hell is never your issue. Hell is never your problem. So I agree with them on that. And other things he said have been proven true. Like the thief of the night has scarred children for life. It has been wrong, harmful, psychological, and to be a child growing up in a strict evangelical world. That movie, Beat The thematic Night, has done a lot of pain to a lot of children at that time. So, my thing is, could hell and heaven be what they depicted in the Bible? Possible, but I don't know um, Frost, do you feel that believing in Hell scarred you? This is Ermin. I'm gonna read you his whole thoughts because he's speaking for himself, okay? Ermin, I do in some ways. I don't think I'm scarred much longer, but I worked really, really hard at it. I was terrified of going to hell, and I think that, you know, psychologically, that was very bad. It it made me a rather obnoxious fundamentalist Christian because i thought that everybody else was going to hell so i had to go out of my way to convert them all he laughs so i wasn't always a pleasant person to be around because i was right they were wrong and since they were wrong they're going to hell but the main thing is that i think that in fact it imposes emotional damage and people need to find life pleasant and hopeful and they, they need to be helpful to other people they need to enjoy life If all you're looking forward to is what's going to happen after you die, you can't really fully enjoy life now because this is just a dress rehearsal. Uh, So I don't try to talk people out of the view of heaven, but I think actually it's better off, you know, not living for what's going to happen after you die. It's better off living for what you can do now. I personally have that perspective. Frost, let's take a break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is religion scholar Bart Ehrman. Author of the new book, Heaven, Hell and History of the Afterlife. We'll talk more after a, a break. This is fresh air. Soundback of Michael Nyman's How Do How Do I Know You Know. Frost, this is fresh air. Let's get back to my interview with Bart Ehrman, author of the new book, Heaven, Hell and History of the Afterlife. He's a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the author of many books about early Christianity. You know, you write your book, you know, you write in your book that it's hard for you to conceive of God as being a sadist. Would torture people for eternity in hell. Woo! Yeah, I have a tough one with that too, Inch. But I have a tough, rough time with that, actually. Herman. Right, so the bottom line of the book is that the way you kind of trace the history of heaven and hell is that when people thought that everybody dies and it's the same for everybody forever. They thought, well, that's not fair. Sure, if there are gods in the world, or a god in the world, there has to be justice. So suffering now must be rewarded later, and wicked behavior now must be punished later. And so they came up with the idea of an afterlife with rewards and punishments. But eventually in Christianity, the idea was that since the soul is eternal, it's either rewarded eternally or it's punished eternally. But then people start thinking well wait is that fair so okay suppose i'm just a regular old sinner and i die when i'm 40 and so maybe i had about 25 maybe even 30 years of not being the most perfect person on earth i'm going to be tortured for 30 trillion years for those 30 years and those 30 trillion years is just the beginning is there really a god that's going to allow that let alone cause it i mean i just know he laughs and so i think I cannot believe that you can actually say that God is just and merciful and loving even if he believes in judgment he is not going to torture you for 30 trillion years and keep going this isn't going to happen it's my thing on that Whew. I really appreciate Bart Ernest's perspective and at the same time I was raped so do I sometimes want the torture to be in hell forever. Yeah, are there other times where I go just remove the evil out of them, punish them, but don't kill them, and then bring them to heaven with me? Sometimes I feel that way. And other times I feel a mixture of, okay, yes, hell, but not endless. Uh, Torture them for a year every day, keep their soul alive, and then eventually bring them back. It, I, I fluctuate oh man Gross, I'm wondering what you think about when you think about how the number of people are contracting COVID-19 and how the number of people are dying keeps growing as we get closer to it, Passover and Easter which are very holy times in Judaism and Christianity Ermin, I think that I'll speak from the Christian tradition which I still cherish even though I'm no longer a Christian there are aspects of Christianity that I resonate with because they're so deeply ingrained in me I relate to that. The Easter story is a story of hope that in the Easter story, death is not the final word, that there's something that comes after death. Spot on, Bart, spot on. There's hope in moments of complete despair, there could be life after death. Yes. I don't take that little anymore because I don't believe there is. I think there could be. I think there could be, that's my perspective. I'm open to it, me too. And I, and I hope there is something after death. And if it is, it will be good. I think the same way. But I personally think po- probably this life is all there is. Some, my heart keeps telling me that there is a paradise. That there is one. But I take the Easter story as a metaphor that even in the darkest hours and there looks to be no hope. And it looks like it's simply the end of all things. There actually is a glimmer of hope and that something good can come out of something very bad. I am the a living, breathing embodiment of that. so I really believe that I probably always, probably always believed with me too. Gross, so what are you gross? So what are you doing to stay safe? You live in North Carolina, you teach in the at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I know you're on a sabbatical right now. Recording this on Thursday as we speak. Is there any kind of advice you're getting in North Carolina about how to behave? Herman. Well, the same advice everybody's getting who's listening to the right news sources which is that you need to self-isolate. You simply, it is going to be a disaster for some way, somewhere on some level for the economy, but it'll be a worse disaster and if we're out in public because we could be spreading the virus. We have to self-isolate. So I'm, my wife and I have been completely self-isolated for a week now, and we're going to stay this way. It's really the only way to stop this thing from growing. It's going to grow. It'll be, exponent, it'll be exponential, but it's the only way to stop it. Gross. So does that mean you're not leaving the house at all, Ermen? Just to go out in my yard, I'll occasionally walk around the block if nobody's around but other than that. No, we aren't using our cars. We're not going out. We're not doing anything else. We're staying, actually staying inside, and we're in the yard. Cross, well, Bart Armin. I wish you good health, and I thank you very much for talking with us. Erman, well, thank you for having me. Hope you stay safe, too. Cross. thank you. Bart Ehrman's new book is called Heaven and Hell. History of the Afterlife. And if you're thinking, but what about this passage in the Old Testament? What about that passage in the New Testament? Let me just say we only had time to touch on a few of the points in Bart Ehrman's book. So if you want to know more about what he has to say about the history of the afterlife, I refer you to his book. Bart Ehrman, thank you again. Ehrman, thank you for having me. Gross. Bart Ehrman is the author of the new book, Heaven, Hell, A History of the Afterlife. Wow. So what are my perspectives? I mean, if this life is the only life I have, then it will be ex- excruciatingly... bittersweet to accept it but I can accept all truths including the hard ones um I live my life very much with the mentality that I live in the present moment mindfulness I was saying earlier I focus on how can I be a light to the world right now I take the initiatives and I proceed. Um, I wish at times that I could enter heaven alive. I wish that I could be like Enoch and Elijah. I could enter heaven alive to my grandma. I I do wish for that. Um, I'm not homicidal. I'm not suicidal. I'm just saying that I really miss my grandma. Wish I had more time with her. Um, It's tough. I do think there's a purgatory, though. Um I had a nightmare and like I told you in other episodes about how I never believe that non-christians go to hell. I never have and I never will. Um why put sweet heavenly souls that's what I think of non-Christians as as Christians. Into permanent sourness called hell. Makes no sense to me. Um, could sin be real? It's possible. I don't know. I think that sinners are people who do happy crimes. Um... You know, like when I, I think about how it's been very uneasy to deal with these subjects. I'm glad we we talked about it.